The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. P. Nate, Elder P, we are the Rebels, the podcast for cultural engagement. I really like the new catchphrase. Yeah, it's good. It's, uh, it ties us to the uh, podcast for cultural reformation, but uh, I, I think it, I mean, it's what we've always been about, right? Our tagline has always been uh, equipping you with the biblical worldview. Yeah, the hardest part the, the hardest part about that is that I have to remember to say it now That's at the fair. beginning of the That's thing. Fair. New habits. <laughs> New habits. And they don't die hard. Is it die hard? You know what? That phrase came to my mind too, die hard. I don't know if that's a phrase, but well, uh, I think it's old, old habits, habits die, die hard. hard right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so new, new habits, habits are established difficultly like, <laughs> yeah. I, don't know. I don't know let me okay this is the, bad radio. you you sparked this i don't think i've ever asked you this on air but i need to know the answer oh boy um die hard is it a christmas movie of course it is i watched Thank you. i watched it during christmas i even watched number two during christmas because there was a night that i think colleen fell asleep at like eight o'clock on some random night i was looking for something to watch and die hard two was there it's more enjoyable than I remember, but Die Hard 1 is awesome. Yeah. It also takes place on Christmas as well. So, like, yeah. they made two movies, and they're both Christmas movies. Exactly. Die Hard 3, not a Christmas movie. Not a Christmas movie. But that's movie. fine. No. Um, I'm glad we settled that. I didn't know. Uh, all of a sudden, I had that moment of, like, can we still be friends? Do I have friends? to quit? <laughs> do, 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 do I have to walk away from this guy? <laughs> is this the end? Is this Pressing the end? questions that matter. <laughs> yeah, so we are the Rebels. Uh, we're part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. Uh, download the Pub TV app. That's your best bet to where to get the contact uh con where to get the podcasts uh this is does not bode well for our episode chris i'm just saying <laughs> most podcasts i think would stop or edit not nah. us we just muscle on through and that's that's the content you've come to love from the rebels not a ton of announcements i just want to remind people of a few things that are uh, near and dear to our heart there's the worldview youth academy it's uh, july 28th to august 2nd it's in port colburn ontario I will be there. Joe Boot will be there. Ted Fenske will be there. Aaron Rock will be there. Calvin Smith will be there. Corey McKenna will be there. There's lots of great topics. There's no better place for young people to get equipped for whatever vocation, whatever schooling they're going to be heading into. And I would encourage you to go to EzraInstitute.com, go to the training programs, click on Worldview Youth Academy and sign up for that. What are the ages for that? 14 to 18. Um, if you are a 13 and a half year old or an 18 and you know a couple month year old or whatever, just reach out to me and uh, we might be able to figure th- something out. But generally, yeah, 14 to 18. So it's that high school range that yeah. we're trying to equip people with a, a biblical worldview. And parents who are listening to this, I believe it fills up pretty quickly and there's limited spots. Yes, exactly. There are limited spots just because of the venue that we're at. And so definitely sign up quick. In fact, by the time you're listening to this, there might even be a few days left. 
Our early bird registration ends at the end of January, so you can save a little bit of money registering in January. The other thing that uh, I would really encourage is parents, the Sunday night, which is uh, where you're encouraged to come and drop off the kids, and that's when the program kind of gets going. We do the orientation on the Sunday night. You're invited this year to stay for a parent dinner meet some of the faculty, meet some of the staff, get an introduction to how you can um, support and encourage your teenager in this endeavor, uh, especially when they get home and where you can get resourced to be the mom, the dad, the family uh, that God is calling you to be in terms of equipping you with a worldview. So we're doing that. That's something a little different this year that we're really looking forward to. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of the Ezra Institute, so last week we recorded a podcast, um, uh, Dr. Michael Thiessen, Dr. Joe Boot, and uh, myself, (laughs) the non-doctor. Not a doctor. I know. (laughs) I'm constantly being reminded of this. We recorded a podcast on family and the importance of family and the centrality of family to the biblical picture and God's rescue plan for the world. And as we often do, we talked a lot about what the Bible has to say, the the worldview, the apologetics, the cultural philosophical side of things. And so what I thought you and I could do is sort of riff off that and get really, really practical, which I think is some sometimes our strong suit is just kind of talking through as a couple of pastors on how we've implemented some of these things that are super important. So we kind of want to take that conversation and we want to get really practical for everybody who listens in terms of some of the things that we said there. So a a couple of the key themes that we talked about is, number one, the centrality of family to the biblical paradigm, right? That family is at the center of God's rescue plan for the world. And then how does a church shift from a very individually focused ministry, you know, you and Jesus kind of thing, to ministering to families and making your church a family of families, And then that sort of led to the end of the conversation that we had with Joe about the necessity of the church going after men. Um, One of the stats that Joe read that I thought was really interesting is that in North America, 61% of church members are female. 61 to 39% is the divide, which just shows that men have been driven away from church. So we're going to talk a little bit about why that is and what we can do to win back the hearts of the men. So that's what we're going to talk about today. One of the things that I talked about briefly in that episode is sort of our church's journey into family integration. And I said that there have been very few shifts in our church culture and our church focus that have borne as much fruit as that shift to family integrated worship. And for those listeners who don't necessarily know us, Chris and his wife actually haven't been able to have kids. And so we're not talking about this as two like young guys with thriving families and young ones and stuff like that. We're coming at this from a very different perspective. And yet both of us completely sold out in terms of philosophically and theologically to the idea of family integrated church. So I'll let actually you lead that conversation. Um, let you start off with that because, you know, it, it could actually be very, very hard for, a, you know, a family like yours to come to a church like this where it's just bustling with kids. But I would say that you and you and Heather have theologically just embraced this whole shift. So how's that been for you? And would you agree with me in saying that there have been very few shifts in our church culture that have been as fruitful and borne as much good fruit as that shift to family integrated worship? Yeah, the shift has been universally amazing for our church. And I don't think we're a u- unique in that. I think that's something that's actually repeatable in all churches Yeah, because God blesses obedience and he blesses when we do things the way he's, his word is prescribed. Yeah. And I'm not saying like there's a specific chapter and verse to say Sunday school is wrong or anything like that. If you, if your church does that or your pastor listening and still do that, 
the Spirit might be leading your church in a different way than He's leading us at this time for seasons or whatever your church is doing. But I would say universally, when you switch to fully integrated worship, there's benefits that are just beyond what you would naturally think. We, we oftentimes define it by the negative. Oh, it's going to be louder. It's going to be more distracting. We've both been in the pulpit. And it's not actually that distracting to have kids doing stuff. It's kind of funny, if yeah. anything. It's, um, it's a paradigm shift, right? You have to train your mind to not be distracted by the little things. And you have to train your people to think of the ambient sound of children as a blessing, not as a distraction. I think that right, that phrase right there, that children are a blessing, not a distraction, is kind of at the heart of what makes fully integrated worship so valuable to a church. And I think it's because we are, you said earlier, we're, we're a family of families. And I think the, the problem is that the big C church North America has elevated the nuclear family to being the only thing that matters. And it's like, no, we're missing that idea that when I come to church on Sunday, the other members of my church's kids are part of my larger family. Obviously I'm not blood to them, but they get something out of the fact that they're in church with me and I get something out of the fact that I'm in church with them. Yeah. Um, and there's this idea of like, we're all in it together. Just like I would never expect to go to your house for dinner on a Sunday night and you'd be like, adults are going to eat now and send the kids to the kid to table like, you know in the mean? other like, room. Yeah. Like I would never expect that because we just rationally understand that when families gather, the family is there. So why do we treat Sunday morning different than that? And out of the mouth of babes so often, right? Yeah. So we can watch and see. And one of the big blessings is we get to see the increase of these children growing in even just the way they attend the service. Like every kid who comes, it kind of goes through a little bit of a cycle. They start by basically needing toys throughout the, like in big distractions. Then they go to coloring. Then they go to listening. Then they go to sitting. Then they go to asking questions. Yeah. And it's like this cycle and you can watch it. It takes like three months. It's, it's unbelievable. But theologically, I would say like as somebody who doesn't have children, I should in all the world's criteria, I should fall on the side of Sunday school should be a thing because I don't want little kids running by me right. or, or anything like that. And but you're, it, you preach here as well. So I don't want it to be a distraction. I, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. But it's not because every single child who is being raised up in the, in the fear and the admission of the Lord in our service is a blessing to our church family because we are cultivating the people who are going to minister to our church 20 years from now, who are going to be the people who are mom, dad, uncle, grandpa, all those things when we are grandpa and that old man who serves coffee. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. Like, first of all, we'll talk about family at the center of God's rescue plan for the world. And what I mean by that is that when God put Adam in the garden, he said immediately, it's not good that man is alone, right? So obviously companionship, community is essential to humanity, right? So we're made in the image of God. God is triune. He is perfect community. He makes man. We are not triune like he is. Therefore, we need community here on earth to reflect the heavenly reality. Yeah, we're not perfectly content in ourselves like God is, right? That's God right. doesn't need us. He didn't need to create to have full enjoyment. He didn't have the abundance of That's his right. love. But whereas man, because we're not the Trinity, we need that complementary partner and the family to actually make that reflection of God's character because then we can display the things that he can display in himself, love, affection, grace, right. mercy, because I can't really show that to myself because the truth is, there's probably nothing more selfish in the world than a single person. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, have you seen this whole like dink life thing? Have you heard, do you know what that, do you no, know that no, phrase? I'm, okay. I'm looking at you like you're crazy right now. <laughs> so there's this new acronym that has come out and it's the new young person 
boasting in the fact that they're a dink that stands for dual income, no kids couple. Right? Oh, so that's the, completely not what I thought it was going to stand for. Um. <laughs> so, so the idea is like dual income, no kids. So there are a couple of videos that came out and, and quite frankly, so basically like me the, and the, my the, wife, the, uh, but, like, but the progressive left is latched onto this and this idea that it's not only better for the environment, right. In terms of climate crisis and all that kind of stuff, but these videos that have come out of, of a couple, a young couple in their early twenties talking about how fantastic it is that they're dinks because they can afford a house earlier. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to make meals like craft dinner. They can eat what they want. They can go to bed when they want. They can go out without having to figure out who a babysitter is, all this kind of stuff. It shows the self-centeredness of your average person nowadays because it used to be, quite frankly, that even godless people had kids because they needed them for the family business, to work the farm, to work the business, all that kind of stuff. We don't need kids anymore in terms of just like household chores and making the business run and working on the farm. And so the idea is now people are having kids out of convenience. And if it's not convenient, then you don't have them. Right. And so the idea is like in a world that's so hedonistic that the goal of life is your own personal happiness. If kids are not making you personally happy, then don't have them. I actually saw a stat recently that young people like so young defining, I think it was under 30, are more likely to buy a house for room for their dogs yeah. than because they need or room want kids. kids. And yeah. It's like, and that's shameful. As somebody who has two big dogs, I love dogs, so don't hear that I'm not a dog guy. But like, I would never have bought a home just so I could have more yard space well, for my pups. Like, and there's, there's like a shift, right? The, the whole idea of like fur babies and all that kind of stuff where it is like there are couples who view their dogs or their pets or whatever as children because they don't want the responsibility of actually raising a human and shaping a human soul, but, but they're okay with like kids and they project into that master pet relationship all that's unfulfilled in terms of their longing for family. But there's so much to say about that. We, we should yeah. just do a whole episode on pets. Yeah. Um, can, I, can we get back to the, yes. uh, the center of the family? Yes. Do you want to talk about why that is? Like, Yeah, yeah. So um, thank you. I was I got distracted. So, <laughs> so we left Adam in the garden <laughs> and it wasn't good for him to be alone. <laughs> so God creates obviously a helper that's fit for him. Now, what, what you have to remember is that the, the mandate for taking dominion, having dominion of the earth has been given, right? So God gives Adam charge, name all the animals, subdue the earth. He gives him the earth to rule over. He creates the world and the world is is untamed wild, right? Untamed wilderness. And yet God creates the Garden of Eden on which God impresses his own rule, his own order. So Eden is the rule of God actualized. And then Adam is placed in the garden. And essentially the the mandate to Adam is rule over the earth by taking the pattern, the order, the cultivation of Eden and filling the rest of the earth with it, right? So God's favorite Bible verse we always say is the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea because it's so often repeated. So that's the mandate. Make the rest of the world, the untamed chaos wilderness that is the rest of the world, make it look like Eden. And when God created everything, he said it's very good. He didn't say it was very best. He hadn't dammed any rivers. He hadn't dug up any ore. He hadn't cut any trees into lumber for a house. So Adam was to take the raw materials of creation and make a habitable home within Eden and then go out into the world and begin to subdue it. And so then God looks and he says, well, Adam can't do that alone. He needs a helper that's fit for him. That's the language of Genesis. There's an interesting thing that we just don't pick up on there too. It's like God has repeatedly said something is good after he's done it. There's day and night on the first day and it was good. And that's then right. it was good. And then all of a sudden he gets to, he creates man. He's like, it's, it's not, not good. good. 
one thing I think we need to always do is pay attention to details like that in narrative scripture and understand what God's communicating there. It's communicating that singleness, well, there are times where that is appropriate in your life. And then there are people who that will be what they're called to because of the fall and yep. all that stuff. But generally speaking, it's not good. That's you know right. I mean, like it's not the design. Right? That's right. So God gives Adam Eve, the helper fit for him for the task of dominion. And so I think this comes in two different ways. I think that number one, there's the recognition that they are going to need offspring in order to cultivate the entirety of the world. They need more than two sets of hands. So be fruitful, multiply. Adam can't be fruitful on his own or multiply on his own. So he's given Eve, who is the helper fit for him, the the other piece that when they come together, they make offspring. So there's that piece of it. But you also see that there's obviously there's two parts to the command, right? As you're taking dominion, it also means cultivating what's been subdued. So there's subduing what's not subdued, and then there's cultivating what has been subdued. And I think we actually see that in that command, in that mandate to take dominion, that the man is more fit for the task of subduing, and the wife is more fit for the task of cultivating what's been subdued. And we see that because if you fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, post-fall, the curse that God enacts on both the man and the woman actually reflects their primary responsibility within carrying out the mandate, right? Because Adam sinned, the ground is cursed, and the ground is now going to rebel against his subduing of it. And Eve, because she sinned, in pain, she's going to bring forth children, right? And she's also going to have a desire to usurp her husband's role, which means that What's disrupted for her is the order, the God-given creational order of the family, her desire to be submissive to a godly husband, and then also pain and childbearing. So that just shows us that within this great task of, of taking dominion of the earth, the man is to be outward focused on subduing what is not yet subdued, and the wife is to be inward focused, focused on primarily raising the godly offspring and cultivating and keeping nurtured what's been subdued. So all that to say, the task that God gives, that his glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, necessitates family, right? It it necessitates family. It it does not get accomplished without family. No. And there's the reasons for that, I think, are profound, but they're deep. I would also add that we see this in scripture. It's from David's family line that both Mary and Joseph come from. That's right burst the Messiah who will actually save the world. So uh, like literally a family That's is, right. what saves, is what saves the world. And not just one generation of a family, a legacy a of a lineage. family. That's a right. lineage. So to answer part of your question about fully integrated worship in terms of why I'm so on board, it's because I understand that it's not just mom, dad, kids. It's grandpa, grandma, That's mom, right. yeah. dad, mom, dad, as all kids, grandkids, cousins, all like, because it's a lineage. So even though I can't, I'm not going to ever spawn anybody into the spawn is a weird way, but that, <laughs> that uh, is a weird way to say like, it. Like, I'm sire. Not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not going to sire. I shall not sire any children. Um, even though I'm not, but I can still pour into Quinn That's and right. Judah and your children's legacy and lineage by helping Judah become a better man and helping Absolutely. Quinn and like, and auntie spending their time. Right. And, being that role in the thing, because it does take more than one mom and dad, right? Well, and that's it. So like my kids are blessed to have Uncle Chris and Aunt Heather, but the blessing of a church family is that even those families that don't have an Uncle Chris and Aunt Heather 
have the benefit of having an Uncle Chris and Aunt Heather. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so this is why the, the single moms in our congregation, their kids will not grow up without father figures. Obviously, that's not ideal. And we, we would like for them to find a, a husband and, and for God to give those children a godly example in the home. But those kids don't have to grow up without male role models and without the good and appropriate godly affection of godly men. Or you think about first generation Christian families who don't have the example of godly grandma, grandpa, their kids get to grow up with surrogate, so to speak, grandma, grandpa, right? Church grandma, church grandpa. So so those without families get to actually involve themselves in church family life if you uphold family within the church and you say these sorts of things from the pulpit and you explain to people why we are a church family. Yeah, exactly. And we do that because family is at the center of the rescue plan. We see it overall throughout scripture because one family is what does it, but also because we understand that the family unit together is strong. When mom and dad are united with kids, there's something that the world can't just tear down. A single person, like if you're just out there, all it takes is you to get knocked down, right? right. If you lose your job, the whole thing. But like when a family unit's strong, it's far more secure than it is otherwise. One of the travesties is saying we do see families break up, but we do see that at a remarkably less percentage in faithful churches, I I would say, as those families like, yes, there will be the the, the wayward child, the, the son who goes apostate or whatnot. But generally speaking, God blesses the generations and we keep this legacy going because remember what adam's mandate was was subdue the earth and multiply that's right right. not multiplication just by evangelism it's literally math we produce tons of children who marry everybody else's kids who produce even more kids and so we take dominion simply by math (laughs) well that and that is part of it like it's not less than that it is more than that and so let's let's make that connection in just a moment but first i want to start because we've used a couple terms here so let's make sure that everybody who's listening is following along with us when we say family integrated worship what we mean is that we encourage in our church corporate gatherings in our worship service not to have kids programs not to send the kids off to their own sunday schools but to keep the families together even at a very very young age we have nursery for a ages, I think, six months to a year and a half or something like that. And generally, a lot of the parents just go in there with that age kids and the sermon is streamed in there and all that kind of stuff. But my point here is that we we keep kids together. And some people might say, well, what's the benefit of having the two-year-old in the service? So here's what we would say. It's number one, we do that because we think that that's what the Bible prescribes, right? So Ephesians chapter six comes along and this is a letter written to churches that was read like a sermon in the churches. And it says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is good, which assumes that the children are present, right? We know the story of Jesus, right? Don't forbid the children to come to me, right? The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as them. In the Old Testament, things like second Chronicles 20 and places like that, first Kings 17, we see the entire assembly of Israel coming together for worship services. And it makes a point in the inspired word of God to say the men and their wives and the children during all of the feasts that are prescribed in the law, it's all bring the whole family together to worship God. During all of the high days where Israel is comes together, you think about Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and Israel gathered at the base of the mountain. All of these examples, it takes note It's the men, it's the women, it's the children. We are not to exclude the children from the corporate gathering of people coming to worship God. So that we do it because the Bible prescribes it. But 
it's not just about the check the box, keep the kids in the service. It's also about an entire culture. So what is it that we're saying? We're not saying that a two or a three-year-old is going to get everything that Chris or I preach from the pulpit. In fact, they'll get very little. But what we actually do is we honor the design, God's design, because what we're saying is families sit together during worship because we are a family of families, and mom and dad get everything that's said from the pulpit, or as much as they can with the distraction of their own kids. <laughs> but they are then responsible to distill that information. It's not Susie Sunday School Lady who is responsible to teach your kids the gospel. It's your responsibility as a parent, which means that every sermon, every father of every household ought to not only be listening and thinking, how do I apply this to my own life, but it's how do I take this? How do I talk to my wife about implementing it? How do I talk to my kids about implementing it? How do I take this information that's geared towards me and how do I disseminate it for my three-year-old, my five-year-old, my eight-year-old, my 10-year-old? And so we're honoring the design of family and we're actually calling fathers to a higher standard. Don't send your kids off to be educated by somebody else, whether that's public school education or whether that's Sunday school gospel education. Don't outsource what God has commanded you to do. A good father does this in almost everything, right? You would never be like, I'm going to send you down the road to go to learn how to change a tire at neighbor Tim's house. Or you could just show the child how to do that, right? A good father would bring, even though he knows I can do it way faster without getting my son to to help this, they bring the son into the labor because then it becomes, it goes from look what my dad did to look at we did dad, right? right? And so like when you're a man and you bring your family into the thing, even though it's uncomfortable, even though you're now only gonna get 60%, say, of what's being said from the pulpit. You might miss the big point of the day and have to go re-listen to it, which takes away an hour of your time. The domino that doesn't flip for a lot of people with fully integrated worship is that they don't realize that little Timmy, um, I don't know why everybody's Timmy to me, but um, (laughs) little Timmy who's sitting there watching, who's only getting 1% of the sermon out of that, but he's getting a heck of a lot more watching dad learn how to watch and to pay attention and how to act in, in church because we're raising up people who we want to stay in the church, which is just a whole nother topic about like what, like why so many people leave the church later, later on, but we're training them up by the right thing. So watching dad fix a tire teaches them something, but so does watching dad open the word, listen to the preacher. That's right. Worship, praise, lift up his holy hands, greet, greet his church family member with a hearty handshake and a holy kiss. If you're so inclined, you know, all that kind of stuff, it all matters. And Remember that kids learn primarily through imitation, not through instruction. So we might think if we send them to an age-appropriate teacher who can instruct them in their three, four, or five-year-old way, then they're going to understand the gospel more. And what I'm saying is actually that's not true because what they will learn is only filling up the 5% of kids learning that's instructional, and you're actually neglecting the 95% that is imitational, which is them seeing mom and dad listen and get fed and value church. We talked a little bit about why family integration. Let's talk a little bit about practicalities. And then I want to get to the big thing that I know you and I both want to talk about. That is like how to go after the men, because this is a very kind of men ministry focus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds sounds great. We'll probably have to do that in the the next episode. Okay. Well, we'll see how far we get. Um, Okay. So let's talk a little practicality. So first of all, it's obviously difficult to keep kids as young as two in the service, right? It does create distraction. Sure. So what do you do about that? 
make everything louder. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so, so why don't you talk to it in terms of like the church culture side of things, and then I'll talk to it just in terms of like actually reigning in your own kids in the pew. Perfect. I would say like there is a real struggle sometimes. Like you might be beside a kid on a Sunday that's screaming and all that stuff. Understand that that's going to happen in a, in a church like ours, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing because it's not going to happen every week. The first thing is like be a little strategic with like your family understand that you might need to sit on the aisle so you can take your kid out to go bathroom or discipline. Those are the only two options. (laughs) One of the things that makes it easier in terms of the church culture is just understanding children are a blessing, not a curse. We, we often say the phrase at our church that fully integrated worship isn't a bug here. It's a, it's a blessing. It's It's a a feature. It's a feature training your people, training your mind. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind that every single child who's crying is yeah, that part is distracting, but that's a blessing from the Lord to our, right. to our body. A church that's busting with babies and kids is a sign of a healthy, thriving community. Amen. I promise you, if you put 100 pastors in a room and ask them, what would they rather? A whole bunch of kids crying or a church that's dying off from age? Yeah. They're all taking the, the distraction of the old people. Yeah. Funerals are a lot more work. So but you, you want the baby. No, I just mean yeah. like that's a, that's a sign of healthy families yeah. in, in your church and you, you want that. As somebody who doesn't have kids, it can be distracting. Of course. But you could also sit in the front row and then there's no kids in front of you. If you're somebody who's like, oh, I suffer from ADD or whatever, um, there are things you can do. But I would say like there was a really big line. Jeff Durbin actually said it one time in the middle of a service. I was convicted to the nth degree because I was getting distracted. So like I wasn't even there. It was just on video. But this kid was yelling so loudly on the video. You could hear it on their YouTube. Yep. And he just stopped in the middle of his like, Praise the Lord that this baby is here and not aborted. I was just like, oh my word. I, and I was crushed, not because I was thinking, oh, that kill that kid or anything, right. but I was I was crushed because I'm like, that is exactly what we're saying. We're, right. we, we want the kids yeah. here celebrating alive yeah. and in worship with the Cause, Lord. Because let's be honest, whether you're in the world, there'd be a whole lot of people who would have thought maybe that kid should have been aborted just because of how frequently the world, they literally view abortion as birth control. But even within the Christian circles, how many Christians would say, they wouldn't say it this way, but functionally they would say that kid could have been stopped with a vasectomy after two. You know what I mean? Like in all honesty, right? Like we've adopted such a worldly mentality of kids where again, it becomes how many kids do we want? How many kids, you know, instead of how many kids does God want me to have? What does fruitful multiplication look like? Why am I stopping where I'm comfortable when I know that God gives grace for what he's called us to do? And if he commands us to be fruitful and multiply, do we not believe that he will also equip us to be able to parent four or five kids instead of the one or two that the world would have us have? We have to kill the whole thing about like, was that a mistake? Right. Yeah, totally. We're just like, oh, then there was just a little gap. Like, it's not um, like, like, next time somebody says that, just slap them. Like, be like, that's. And I'll say Chris like, maybe do it. <laughs> Chris told me to do this. No, but I but I like for us, for those of us who aren't in the child rearing years, you know what I mean? Like who are past that or, or like, you know, maybe we've already done our business with the children and like is to remember that like every kid who's running around knocking our coffee, bumping into us, like our church is very packed. That's why everything's about like no space. <laughs> it's a blessing, not a bad thing. It's a it's a joyous thing. Because my reaction to that child running around is teaching them something about the character of Christ. That's exactly my, my enjoyment of them is teaching them something about the enjoyment of Christ because fast forward till they're 18, 19, when they can start making those choices, is this real? Is this not real? Do I want to attend? 
I promise you, they might not remember an incident, but they are going to remember the feeling of your church. That's right. If this is a church that was like welcoming to their kids, because if it wasn't, they're leaving because they're going to yeah. go find something that scratches what they're itch. And the stats, the overwhelming stats would show that they don't just go to another church. Yeah. They just leave. That's the, right. Leave the church. Because the world is happy to embrace them with open arms, yeah, they, right? The, the, the world is happy to find a space where they feel, you know, accepted, if you will. And we're not talking about accepting kids and all their sin. We're not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about creating an atmosphere that reflects the heart of Christ who says, no, no, let the children come to me. Yes, I get that I've had a long day of ministry. I get that I'm tired, disciples, but you don't have to send kids away because they actually renew my strength. They don't sap my strength. Okay, so just some practicalities in terms of that stuff. You, you already got to some of that stuff. I would say as a, as a family who had to teach our kids about family integrated worship and how to sit still and all that kind of stuff is number one, don't expect perfection right away, right? Train them. And so we let our kids color and fill in, you know, uh, we got little doodle pads for them and stuff stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can color. And it started off with their little princess book or whatever it was that they were just coloring. And then it became, okay, color these coloring sheets. Our our church began to hand out kids packets and all that kind of stuff. So color these coloring sheets that kind of go along with the sermon theme, fill out the kids outline of the sermon that has them kind of count words that I say during a sermon and all that kind of stuff. So if you're listening to this and you're a pastor or you're a church, church leader. Part of it is, you know, what are you handing out to the kids to help them? So one of the things that I do is I, I, number one, I tell some of the younger kids, you know, draw a picture either of me or of the sermon and come and give it to me afterwards. And those kids actually know, because some of them have come into my office weeks after giving me a little scrap piece of paper with a drawing on it. And I can pull out the file in my office that has every piece of artwork that every child has ever given to me. I got hundreds of pieces of paper with scraps and and notes and pictures and, and all that kind of stuff on them. So again, the pastor, you're setting the tone for the value that you place on the children in your congregation. So so don't just pay it with lip service. But I would say, so hand out things, let the kids have their own outlines. We do like also like uh, word tracking. So on a sermon, I'll tell our administrator like, hey, I'll probably say the word kingdom and covenant a lot in this, in this sermon. So they have like little tallies so they can that's count how many. Week, <laughs> that's fair enough. Or king or sin or, you know, whatever the word is. So you give them a couple words and they count and they tally. So it helps them listen, but it also creates sort of a, a bit of a game for them. So for our kids, the other thing we do is we don't let them go to the bathroom. You don't have to go to the bathroom in the middle of an hour and a half long movie so you don't have to go to the bathroom in the middle of an hour and a half long service go to the bathroom beforehand i mean of course if it's an emergency it happens but that's the expectation there's no up there's no down there's no talking all that kind of stuff you worked up to that but we worked up to that right so it's like little things right so it's like yeah we'll go to the bathroom we'll all go together everybody go pee whatever but as they've gotten older we've just refined the expectations to now where quinn who's my oldest and she's eight she sits there she listens she fills out the sermon outline and she has and, and we always say have a question for me after the service, something that you didn't understand or something that you want clarification on and tell me one thing that you learned. And, but that also means you talk about it afterwards. That means that you don't just go home and kick up your feet and crack a beer on a Sunday afternoon. It means that you go home and you talk to your kids about the service. What did they learn? What didn't they learn? What, you know, all that kind of stuff. So those are just some practical things in terms of expectations for kids. And honestly, don't care if your kids are, if you have a a two-year-old and they're lying on the ground at the foot of the, the chair, who cares? Let them do that thing. Make church a place that they like going, not a stuffy place that they feel uncomfortable in. I would say 100% to all that. I would also say like one of the things we need to put to death in our culture is this idea of like, this is what the world says that you have to be equipped to do this all on your own. 
get help. You guys did a great job, but how many times did Auntie hundred percent sit time. there sit there with you? Because Auntie, now she just did it. Like Holly doesn't always need the help, but like bring in the young single guy who loves to play with your son or whatever. Like, or yeah, totally. So like in our, in our church, I'll just give a shout out like aunt Heather and Josh McKenna are two people like Colleen's kind of a single mom on Sunday mornings, right? I'm up preaching for an hour. And so she's there in the pews with the kids for an hour. She understands what it's like to be a single mom in those scenarios. And so as our kids were, were learning and being trained, yeah, auntie would often sit with us because you had responsibilities during the service as well. So it's our wives who are sitting with my kids. Josh McKenna is another one. There have been times when the newborns here and all that kind of stuff and Colleen might have to feed and, and use, you know, use the, the little thing that covers her when she's feeding the sanctuary or whatever, which means that Josh McKenna might be sitting with our kids and helping encourage them to listen and all that kind of stuff. Like that is the aspect of like family, right? Yeah, like that, the, utilize the church family. Exactly. And that's and that's where we're saying it's like it's a cultural thing. Right. So play that out practically. So what we're saying is we're saying the people who have their kids who have been raised already. Like maybe your kids have moved away and they don't come to this church, kind of adopt a younger That's family right, to yeah. sit in their road and be like, I can, I can, I can help. help in this situation because I've done this already. And the truth is if you're, you know, 55, 60, you probably further along in the walk that missing the sermon on a Sunday morning, like it shouldn't be the distracting in terms of your faith that much. Yeah. You're probably retired. You probably have time to listen to it on Tuesday. And then too, like, your walk is established. Some of these young mothers need a lot more out of that. So you can come alongside to help them. So that's for the older people, but then the younger people, this is what you want to be doing in five to 10 years. That's right. So learn how to do it now by sitting like, so you mentioned Josh, Josh is learning how to be a dad in the middle of a service by sitting with Judah boy in the service because he's watching how it is, how it should be, what happens, what the kids are doing, how you go from playing with the action figures to now they just sit and listen. That's right. And like, you earn up and they learn, like you said, from imitation. Well, so do adults, right? Yeah, like hundred percent. Um, how many, how many people have you trained to preach who now preach with the exact same methodology that you, <laughs> yeah, because we learn from imitation, imitation yeah. and what is the work of the ministry? The work of the ministry is for us to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's right. So as a father in your, the congregation's parents, your job is to then equip your kids for work in ministry, like in ministry, not necessarily vocational ministry, but all of our families are designed to expand the kingdom and to take dominion. That's a mandate for all of us. That's right. Which means, Dad, your main priority on Sunday morning isn't to make sure you get out of the service. It's to be equipped so that when you go home, you can talk to little Tim. Yeah, about it's always what, Timmy. To, to, about what the application, how it would apply to him. Yeah. Because your application might not apply to little Timmy every week, but it's Dad's job to then be like, well, here's what Nate said here's what pastor nate said here's how i here's how it applies to you little tim exactly like little tim is that the thing out of the kiss christmas carol yeah uh tiny tim tiny tim that's why it's in my brain that's a good point so just a couple of very quick things as we kind of try to wrap up practically speaking so you said something that was really good and important there and that is first of all let me just say when we started family integration here at the church I thought it was important for us to start like when we were also in the thick of it. So we're not just, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And, and so it's easy. It's easy for somebody, maybe without kids, maybe with older kids. It'd, it'd to, be a totally to be different to, thing if I was the, right. like the starting point. So here we are. And Quinn was three and a half. Judah was two. And Harper was a newborn. And that's when we started Family Integrated Worship. <laughs> so we were right in the thick of it. And one of the things that I would say that we did wrong 
is that, and I, I kind of gave Colleen permission to do this, is that she had, would have to feed Harper. She was a newborn. And so it was like, okay, sit through as much of the sermon as you can. And then as the kids started getting squirrely, it's like, okay, let, now let's go to Nate's office and I'm going to feed the baby and you know, the, then the kids can play. One of the things that we didn't realize was happening because I would kind of commend my kids. Oh, you sat through you know 30 minutes of the 45 minute sermon today or whatever. You just smirked because I never only preached 45 minutes. I, I, I saw it. I saw that. But what we didn't realize is you're essentially reinforcing that once you hit your breaking point, then you can go play. It's like we were rewarding them for getting squirrely during the sermon. So now, so the expectation became they have to sit there that whole time. So now how do we mitigate? Like, what do we bring them? So it's like bring them a snack partway through all that kind of stuff. So just a little, little thing that we learned in that regard. The other thing I would say is like, Yes, we love the the noise of children, the the ambient noise. We don't think it's a distraction. We think it's a blessing. But if your kid is misbehaving, we're talking about the kid who's crying, the kid who's screaming, the kid who actually is being a distraction, throwing a temper tantrum or whatever, you need to discipline the child. And so we often joke that like the pastoral offices aren't being used during the service and those are attitude adjustment rooms. <laughs> and so, and honestly, I would just say like, you need to teach your child that that's not appropriate. Now you don't have to be embarrassed about it. You don't need to flush and turn red and smack your kid in the pew. That would be abusive, but you take your child into a, an appropriate room, whatever the rules are in your household for us, defiance is a spanking, disobedience is a spanking. And so if you're in the row and you say, you need to, you need to do this. And then they say no. And because you take the thing away they throws a temper tantrum you might need to go into an office but do it patiently do it not embarrassed because that's going to lead you to be when you're embarrassed that means that you you end up generally disciplining because of your own ego your own perception your own pride rather than for the child's benefit Mm -hmm. so i would just say like you have to be ready to do those things and then the other thing is like be a fun parent like early on when our kids were doing this well and we would walk out and be like, man, that was a really good Sunday. Kids, we're grabbing ice cream on the way home. Like that's okay. You don't want to bribe your kids by saying, if you do this, then I will do this. But like be that fun parent who celebrates the accomplishments of your kids. And so if my three and a half year old sat through the sermon and sat there and colored a nice picture and understood something, I'm going to reward them and I'm going to be fun and I'm going to you know um, acknowledge that. So make sure you're doing that yeah, as well. well. Proverbs tells us if you acknowledge the ways of the Lord and you do what he's, I can't, I'm butchering the proverb, but you do well, it will go well for you. Yeah, that's right. So there is, there is that kind of premise of like rewarding good behavior. This afternoon is going to go well for you. You're not going to get a spanking. (laughs) But I mean, like, like rewarding good behavior is fine. Bribing for good behavior is bad. So we didn't get to anything that we kind of wanted to talk about, (laughs) as is usually the case. But what we wanted to talk about is like, okay, obviously one of the benefits that comes out of a family-centric church culture is that we focus on calling the men. So I want to leave you with sort of a teaser for tuning into our next episode. Our next episode, we're going to say how to win the hearts of the men. I just made up that title. That's what it's going to be called, okay? Sounds great. The idea there is that I'll just statistically tell you that in a family where the father is involved in the church... The children are, and this is incredible, 85% likely to remain in church, make church a priority, be Christians, and raise their family in a church. In a household where the father is not in the church, right, does not go to church, stays home or isn't a Christian or whatever, even if the mom faithfully brings the kids, that number shoots all the way down to 40%. Unbelievable. 40%. And so... As go the men, so go the families. As go the families, so go the church. As goes the church, so goes the world. That's just the reality. And so one of the things that I think the church has done poorly in North America, 
And I, I, I told you the statistics, 60, I think it's 61% versus 39% in terms of the weightedness of women in the, in the church, North American church, is what, what the church has done poorly is they've catered to the women because the general mentality is happy wife, happy life. And pastors have adopted that sinful mentality by saying, if I can just keep the women in my church happy, then the church will be happy because the men are generally absent, either physically absent or emotionally or investedly absent, right? Mm -hmm. Withdrawn. And so they invest in the women. And oftentimes what happens even in quote unquote theologically complementarian churches is that you have women who essentially lead the home because the husband has subscribed to a sort of servant leadership that just basically means I'm going to do whatever keeps my wife happy. And in doing so, they are even advocating for things within the church that make their wives happy. You have a lot of complementarian churches that are essentially led de facto by the wives of elders and by the wives of pastors. And so I would just say getting the men and encouraging and equipping them to lead is paramount to making family integrated worship successful so our next episode will be about winning the hearts of the men love it all right all right you got anything else to say no that was i wanted to edit just like that okay perfect bye